Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by three very special guests, my co-founder and Dwayne, uh, VP of Engineering uh, at Twitter, Nick Caldwell, and partner at Better Tomorrow, uh, Sheil Manat. Uh, we're lucky to have Sheil and Nick as uh, network leaders at, at Village Global. Uh, everybody, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, man. Glad to be here. Awesome. So we're excited to get into the craft of angel investing. How do people get started? How do they get better? First, I want to give a brief overview of why, why Village cares about this and spends so much time on it. At the highest level, you know, we, 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 a lot of us like to make fun of VCs for sort of uh, preaching one thing and then practicing something different. So they'll say, hey, no co-CEOs, you have to have one CEO, yet they'll have their partnerships, you know, <laughs> seven people all, all equal. Or they will say, you know, you need to have network effects or moats or, you know, or scale, don't, don't run a lifestyle business, yet VCs often don't have any of those things. One other one that I find is interesting is that you know, venture capitalists, uh, as capitalists, are big fans of, of markets because markets, uh, you know, sort of decentralized markets, can better disperse, can better leverage networks and disperse information than a centrally planned, you know, central planner determining what the lo- price of the loaf of bread should be. You need sort of, uh, you need to leverage a network. And yet, when it comes to their own investing practices, it's just five people on Sand Hill Road covering the entire you know, entire ecosystem, every sector, every geo, every person, and believing that they can have perfect information uh, in, in their heads on, on all of them. And so Village is structured really trying to decentralize that. Instead of five or three people, masters of the universe, we have dozens of dozens of angel investors that we co-invest with and even empower with our capital uh, and thus incentivize them to uh, leverage their network expertise, their specific networks, their sector expertise, uh, and make better decisions as a result. So we think a lot about who are the best angels, how to discover the best angels, and then how to help them get better a- a- as angels. And is, is there anything you'd, uh, you'd like to add to that? No, that's a great summary. And uh, you know, in general, I guess I'd say we look for people who are one of two categories. They're really early in identifying potential, you know, the talent and opportunities hiding in plain, plain sight, or they're experts. They're the kind of p- people that founders just really want to have on their cap table. Yeah. Totally. And that's a perfect segue into, into Sheil and Nick, two, two people we've identified and, and, and worked with on a number of, of deals together. By way of introduction, Sheil, let's start with you. Why don't you talk about how you got into the practice of, of angel investing and then how you've, uh, what, what your journey has been evolving uh, as, as an angel? Yeah, sure. So um, I got into angel investing kind of maybe accidentally. I was a founder and I was pitching VCs and loved it. I love pitching, but I also instantly knew I want to be on the other side. I thought like, oh, those people with VCs, like they have all the money. They're so, so smart. They get to like, tell me what to do. Uh, these are like thoughts I had at the time that I now know are crazy and stupid and wrong. And then when we sold the company in 2012, I had a little bit of capital and I had moved to San Francisco from Chicago. And so for me, angel investing was accomplished a few different things. One, I had friends who were starting, to, starting companies and I wanted to support them. Two, it was a way for me to like candidly like meet new people. I just moved to San Francisco and I was like, let me just put a shingle up there 
and meet people. And in fact, like some of the people I invested in have become close friends. So that, that actually did work. And then I thought like, let me understand if I actually am better at this thing. I thought I was like, I thought I spotted trends early when I was an entrepreneur and I like, there were companies I really wanted to invest in, but never, never did. And then, so I thought, let me see if I can, I can spot those trends early. And then I thought also, let me see if I can be inspired by something that I'm, some company that I'm meeting, either join them on their journey or start something in an adjacent space. Uh, and then sort of finally, you know, if I'm good at this, I'll make money. And, you know, it accomplished all of those things. It's been, it's been truly remarkable. And so from that time, that was in 2012 until, you know, several years, until basically two, three years ago, I decided to like become a real VC and, and up my game a little bit. And then now actually really formally up my game to, to, to a formal VC firm. I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed every bit of it. Totally. How would you say you've, you've applied all the learnings from your angel investing to your successful career as a reality star in Zoom Bachelor? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've learned, it's all about like, I really, I really want to get to know these people the same way I want to get to know these people, these companies. And I treat the companies like I would treat any partner, right? Like I only work with people that I love working with. And I think the same applies in relationships. Totally. The answer I would have given is timing is everything. <laughs> timing is everything. That's also true. <laughs> <laughs> well, and could perspective uh, dates or diligence you with portfolio companies that could be really efficient. That's that. Honestly, I think that's a good idea. <laughs> I, I I love being diligent. Actually, yeah, like, yeah. You got nothing to hide? <laughs> I got nothing to hide. And actually, I was thinking like, especially in this new fund, we don't have a brand yet. So we have no brand, but we do have a reputation. And yeah. so in absence of, of brand, all we have is a reputation. So all we do all day long, our portfolio companies are like on the phone with potential <laughs> portfolio companies of ours. And so... That's what you have to do to, to kickstart it. Awesome. Nick, Nick, how about you? Why don't, why don't you sort of detail your journey uh, as, a, as an angel investor, how you got started and, and how it's evolved? Yeah, cool. I'm still pretty new to it, but I'm, I'm happy to tell you how I got to where I'm at. So I, I was at Microsoft for 15 years in Seattle and living in a world that had really nothing to do with uh, angel investing. The, the scene in, in that part of the world is, is very, very different than what you see uh, in the Bay Area. And uh, you know, a couple of years ago, I moved down here to become a VP of engineering at Reddit. It was my first uh, sort of startup gig. And uh, I was just sort of taken aback. I mean, the, the difference between the investing ecosystem in Seattle and what you see uh, in San Francisco is night and day. That is to say, to, to live in, in San Francisco you and be in tech, you pretty much have to understand how these things work if you're going to function and network with other companies. So I was sort of immediately thrown into this world that I really didn't have any understanding of and felt the need to to learn really quickly. So I, I started to meet with lots of different uh, venture capital firms and, and understand how they think about the world. Eventually, I got introduced to the whole YC network and I got to attend the first demo day. And that was really my first ham-fisted attempt at angel investing. <laughs> so I, uh, if, if you look at my portfolio, uh, you can see most of the uh, the dead bodies came from uh, that first first uh, YC meeting, but it was enough to give me a taste. And um, later on, I had uh, attended a program called First Round Angel Track, which is a little bit more uh, formal. Has some some great folks who come in and and do talks. Uh, Lad Gill was one of them. Uh, really enjoyed that, and it gave a more formal structure for how to think about evaluating uh, investments. So you're not just sort of treating it like gambling. 
I uh, talked about forming the in- investment thesis and evaluating, you know, which metrics and so forth. And, you know, since then, uh, I've used, uh, I've become, a, I would claim a little bit more sophisticated in terms of how I uh, think about uh, my thesis and, and what I look for in founders and so forth. Um, so I, I've, I'm using angel investing, uh, as uh, as Shale said, to, to network. I think you learn so much from talking to founders who are immersed in, in, in a new area, not just because not just because it's a cool area, but because they have to be immersed in it to, to survive. <laughs> so I enjoy learning. I enjoy the networking. And then another aspect of it, you know, you know, in my, in my particular career stage, I'm, I'm trying to do things that I, I think are meaningful. It's part of why I joined uh, uh, Twitter as VP of engineering, but also, you know, as part of my angel investment uh, thesis, I, I'm, I'm looking for underrepresented uh, founders as well. And um, to me, it's been incredibly meaningful to, you know, be first uh, check to, to a, uh, an underrepresented founder who's gone on to, to be successful. And I think I've done that twice now amongst other, uh, amongst a, a large portfolio. So uh, it's, for me, it's learning. It's about being part of the, the whole Bay Area network. Uh, and then, you know, you can find some meaning in it too. I hope I make some money as well. And is it, what would you add in terms of uh, advice that you give angels and in, in how to get started or, 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 or why they should why they should do so? Well, one is I think Akita, and you heard it in both what Sheila and Nick were talking about is relationships. Because Nick, I think the first deal we did together with Devaris Brown at Maroxa was based on a relationship you forged at Microsoft many years ago. And he had always heard of you and knew you, and and now your worlds collided again. So I think that is really interesting. Is just to think about keeping eyes and ears open. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's the one thing I I would call out as being critical to to, to living and working in, in Silicon Valley. It's these these re, these relationships end up becoming more valuable than the individual. Certainly, the individual lines of code that you work on day to day. It, you know, your code is, if anything, like a depreciating asset, but the, the networks and the people that you meet uh, appreciate over time. And uh, yeah, no, Devaris, I met him uh, first at Microsoft and then reconnected with him when he had also decided to move down to the Bay Area. And uh, when he decided to go and do a raise, it was like, yeah, dude, I'll, I'll, I'll back you because of that longstanding uh, relationship. And he's since, since gone on to do uh, quite well. I'm really proud of him. I, I want to talk about the, the flip side of the relationships, which is uh, regret minimization. If you have a friend who asks you to invest in them and, and you say no, and you're in a position to put in even a tiny bit of money and they go off to be immensely successful, it will haunt you for the rest of your life. <laughs> and that's uh, what my, my, my sort of line on this is invest in your friends' companies, except for your dumb friends, be their advisor. <laughs> but uh, if I passed on any friend listening, it's because I didn't have enough money at the time. Uh, and that's, that's, that's the only reason. <laughs> You're self Looking at, yeah. <laughs> Everyone take a close look at all, all those companies that Eric is an advisor to. <laughs> what you, uh, well, let's talk about onboarding to, to angel investing. One thing we're, we're really excited about, to, what we're all excited about is, is getting more people into angel investing. Nick, you, you sort of mentioned you started relatively late and perhaps might have liked, liked to start earlier. And you mentioned how the first round program was, was very helpful for you. What one thing, uh, Village and OnDeck are teaming up to to create is this is this angel fellowship and and, and it's uh, very much inspired by the success that the first round has had and we sort of want to formalize it and and create a wider sort of a uh, program so we'll do cohorts of maybe eighty people and we'll do maybe up to ten a year so uh, we'll just be onboarding lots of different kinds of uh, of angels 
what other advice do you have besides sort of, you know, the goals of the program are to help, you know, people find a network that they can co-invest uh, with. Elad Gill, Kiefer Boy, Mike Maples, all, you know, Sarah Tabel, uh, all these people, Reed Hoffman are, are coming to coming to speak. Um, so we have some expertise on how to, how to think about portfolio construction, et cetera, and then some deal flow from the, from the on-deck founder network. What else would you advise, whether it's a mental shift or whether it's practical in terms of getting people started uh, in angel investing? People who are listening to this saying, hey, I, I got some cash, but don't exactly know where to start. What advice might you, uh, what other advice might you give to them, either of you? I think you should start by setting out a certain amount of money that you want to invest and think through how many investments you want to make. And I didn't do this, by the way, but one potentially good idea is to invest the same amount of money in every every deal, $25,000. That's just, that's the check I write, that sort of thing, 25 or 50,000, you know, whatever. And, and by the way, if it's not even that high, if it's not even $25,000, if it's $10,000 or maybe even $5,000, you could probably still slip into deals. Like if you prove that you're helpful, companies will let you into their deals. And, and other investors like myself will make room for people who have proven that they can be valuable. And it doesn't it doesn't necessarily matter what your check size is. But keep a consistent check size. Invest in a lot of companies. Like the only way to get better is to practice. And, and the way you practice is making a lot of investments. You'll learn what you like. You'll learn what you don't like. You'll learn, you'll build some pattern recognition, which could be good, could be bad, but I think in general, just do a lot of it. When I was getting started, so over the course of over the course of like four or five years, I did about thirty investments um, as an as an angel, and that pace is high for some people. But like to have success, you typically need to have a lot of numbers, and so. The other thing you realize you have to realize is it does take time. Like people ask your time. And for me, what I found is I loved giving the time actually. Like I really enjoyed helping founders at the earliest stages. And that's actually a great joy for me. And that's actually why I decided to become a full-time investor is I loved helping so much that I thought like I should be, be able to do this with more money than I have. I should do other people's money. And that, that's, that's what I've been doing. Uh, more recently. Yeah. To indicate to the audience who can't see Shield's commitment to this, he's wearing a Patagonia jacket right now. <laughs> <laughs> As we speak. <laughs> um, two, two, two things I, I'd add to that. One is yeah, do a lot and, and start early because it takes a lot of years to, to get feedback on, on how you're doing. And, and VC is often reflexive where the people who are known as the best have done the best deals and then get even better deals and then become better. And the only get known as the best or the easiest way to get known as the best is to have winners. And the way to have winners is to start early such that you can, you know, have five years pass to, ha to have a couple of big companies. And I think people don't fully appreciate just how long the feedback cycle is relative to other fields or other, other practices. The other um, thing I'd say is it's important to consider scout money uh, for, for people who can't afford it. Um, and the way I would think about scout money is adding so much value to venture capitalists that they can't ignore you, basically. Uh, just keep sending them deals and don't necessarily think, oh, on the first one, they have to compensate you for it. But at, if you keep sending them deals and they do one or they do two, at some point, they're going to be like, hey, I should just cut out the middleman and <laughs> give you an allocation. You should do it. 
Too many people, I think, try to be transactional the first, first check or just say, hey, I'm ready to be a scout, make me a scout, where it's really the people who've been putting in the work for quite some time, who built a relationship such that they'll trust them with an allocation. And that's how I got started at, at Product Hunt. I was lucky to have that tool to just send deals to people all the time. And then without even asking, someone was like, hey, let's just cut me out. Why don't you, here's just a pool. Why don't you just go, go invest it? Building on that, Eric, I think sometimes people, um, they should maybe hang out in the title pools of entrepreneurship and try to pick their first deals. An alternative is to take your skills and go to another angel or go to a VC and say, you know, I know something about growth. I know how to go to market in these situations. I'd love to help some of your portfolio companies. And you can demonstrate some of your value, both to founders and to the VCs, which might lead to a scout allocation. Plus, when you're working with the VCs, you'll naturally get some deal flow. So it's kind of circular. Totally. Uh, you, and you stole one of my tips I was going to get. But, <laughs> no, I, I think you're totally right, though. It's um, I made this mistake early on when I was trying to explore different ways to get uh, deal flow. So my first attempt was um, I, have a, I have a decently sized social media following. So I decided to go that route and see how far I could get attracting, um, uh, attracting deal flow. And um, turns out that was a disastrous mistake. I got flooded with really bad ideas. I think if, if I had a, if I were running my own firm, I might have the capacity to have vetted all of those, but it, it did not go uh, how I'd anticipated. And then, um, you know, over the last year, what I found is that um, it's been the relationships with, uh, with, with VCs and other entrepreneurs that have actually bought the, the best deals because they know what I'm actually interested in. So it's, I'm not being flooded with like direct to consumer things or, Hey, do you want to start a jewelry shop in Eastern Africa? It's, it's things that I actually know and can, <laughs> can, can help with. And I think that that would lead to the second point I would make, which is, um, when I got started, I definitely hadn't thought through, you know, a thesis or, or set of things I really cared about. And so people didn't really know how to interface with me. Like the, they, they, you know, read my resume and take a few guesses on things that I, uh, you know, based on that, that I, I was interested in. But I found that like when I just sat down and wrote even just two paragraphs and posted it up on my, uh, my LinkedIn profile about what I actually care about, the quality of, uh, of deals and, and asks coming my way went up substantially. So, so just thinking through like your hypothesis and where you think the world's going can, can be uh, a great filter. Uh, and the final thing, I, I think Sheil said this earlier, but I wanted to tack onto it, um, showing value. I found that the bar f- as an angel to show value is pretty low. <laughs> so <laughs> like I, I've just learned this over time. Like when I talk to founders, like I, I'll always tell them, look, like every, every month when you send out your update, I'll respond in some way, even if it's only to say congratulations on the progress uh, but if I see something I can help in your in your invest investor asks, I'll take a swing at it. And just committing to do that, doing that, has been like a, put me above the bar for for most founders. And then they go on to <laughs> refer me to, to other other great companies. So just you know, carve out you know even fifteen minutes a month to to do some responses uh, has has been really helpful for me. I think that's that's so true. The bar is very low. One of the things that I found as I transitioned from an angel to a investor that didn't lead rounds to now an investor that leads rounds is how critical that is just being, being so helpful. So if you want to, if you ever want to make the transition to leading rounds, know that it's about winning. 
and there's only typically only one or or sometimes two leads per round and a lot of these companies in this market a good company has five plus term sheets sometimes so you know they're calling all of your references so like all of the goodwill that you built during that time as an angel investor it's like time to cash it in right now and i'm i'm using all of my all of my relationships with entrepreneurs over the past several years to like get on the phone with people who don't know my firm and say you got to work with this guy and like start that early and be be the most helpful angel you can and it'll pay dividends for you in the future totally i, I want to segue into uh the evaluation uh, period. How we think about evaluating founders? What do you look for in in founders or strong founding teams, or or what questions? What are your favorite questions to ask founders to uh, to better suss out whether whether you might like to invest? Sheil, any 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 starting with you, any frameworks that you like to think about? Yeah, I I think about. I don't have any good specific questions, but I think about broadly speaking, is this person have they clearly articulated their vision to me? And for me, like if somebody can clearly articulate their vision and get me to buy into that vision, that's that's the the most important thing. So it's like, do they have some domain knowledge and expertise and that they can show me? It doesn't have to be prior domain knowledge or expertise, but like have they learned enough that they can teach me something? And do I believe that they can execute on the plan? And then it's not just one person, but the CEO tends to be who I spend the most time with. So that's like the most important thing. And if they're not clear and authentic, I don't think they're going to build, they're not going to be able to sell me. They're not going to be able to sell customers. They're not going to be able to sell future investors. And then they're not going to be able to sell future employees to join them. And, and so that that's the most critical thing. And then it's also like, we invest in companies that we think can become billion dollar plus companies. And so is this somebody who I think can lead a 200 person organization? Uh, Nick, how do you think about that? About that? I, mean, I, I would say maybe there's two ways I would break it down. Like I have a couple consumer products and I've a, I primarily do enterprise. On consumer, I pretty much am like, is this guy in Gen Z or this guy or gal a Gen Z person? And uh, do I roughly like their idea? That's the entirety of it because I can't predict anything in that space. For enterprise, though, I, I know quite a bit about that space. So I, I look at the, the biggest mistake with founders I see working on enterprise is they'll they'll be a little too focused on the tech and they don't think through the go to market. So I look at if the founder has that balance, like they, they've thought through this problem on multiple dimensions. It's not just like oh, I have some cool new database technology, but you know I've actually spent time trying to 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 land a mid market or enterprise sales, like. Do I believe this person actually has the capability to build the constellation of disciplines that are required to take a, a product uh, fully to market? And that can come out pretty quickly. I mean, I, you know, you can see if, if people either have sales experience or, or maybe if one of the first activities they've done as a founder is spend time with a customer and do some journey mapping or design cycle or whatever process they might want. But like, um, I look for that balance that goes, you know, beyond having a great technical chops to, to thinking in a multidiscipline fashion. The other thing that I get hit with a lot is people who haven't really thought through the scale. Uh, so they might have a really good idea and understand how to go to market, but it, like 
they don't realize that what they're proposing is maybe just a service business or it'll never get out of SMB. So I, I really pressure people to, to think through, uh, you know, if, if things go well, how does, how does your business actually get to a hundred million ARR? Do, do you realistically have an answer for that? That's, that actually weeds out quite a few people because they've never been in a situation to have to think through that, you know, and, and, uh, you know, beyond that, there's also kind of a, honestly with any, if it's with any thing where it's an investment and people are taking money out of my pocket, there's a social component to it too. So, you know, do, do I imagine myself having a good relationship with this, this person? And I can come in a come. It's hard to measure, but it matters. Like you want to, you want to believe that your money's going to find a good home, <laughs> not, not just in terms of the business, but with the person that you're, you're giving it to. And um, that can come out in different ways, but those are the, the dimensions I look at. Totally. And, and Nick, say more to, to what extent you're sort of founder driven versus, versus thesis driven or, or market driven. And maybe you could use uh, Devaris at Maroxa as an example for sort of your, uh, your thought process making an investment. Yeah, sure. I mean, so it's, a, it's an intersection of two things. Like I, I have a thesis and if you're, you know, if your company doesn't kind of match to one of the things that I'm interested in, uh, you know, hyper collaboration, the future of no ops, the, uh, the future of uh, online education. These are roughly the three things I, I care about. And if you don't map within that, that thesis, I kind of politely filter you out right away. So uh, Devaris is in the realm of, uh, of, of moving toward no ops. Like he's, he's come up with an idea that massively simplifies the deployment and oper- operationalization of real-time data streams which is uh, an emerging problem that uh, I, through my own experience as an operator at Looker and other places, know is, uh, is, it matters, increasingly matters. So he's, he's landed the uh, sort of uh, thesis aspect of it. And then on, a, on that personal basis, to a, you know, I've known that guy for four, four years now. And day one, I met him, he was pitching me on some hustle. Like, I know he's got, <laughs> I, I know he's got like the founder hunger, like, and, you know, when you find people like that who have that energy and they're just looking for like the right product to apply that energy, you know, it, the potential is there. And, um, you know, when he, when he started talking to me about Maroxa, I could see, you know, great founder energy lining up with uh, an idea that, the, that is primed, you know, bleeding edge market ready. And, uh, you know, I, I took uh, the first opportunity I could to cut that check. Uh, and what advice do you uh, often uh, dispense to, to angels in terms of, or, or, or what questions do you like to ask uh, ask founders, or how, how do you think about evaluating the, the founder portion of it? Got it. Well, um, so often I feel like we see little snapshots, and I'm more interested in helping the founder help me envision the movie, like see the movie. What have you done, and what have you learned as a result? Especially, Eric, especially because we, we fund so many first-time founders. And we're trying to gauge potential. And maybe they haven't built a business before, but talking through things like, how did you make that decision? And maybe it was a decision to um, start something else or leave something else, but just what is their thought process? And then my favorite thought about founders is entrepreneurs don't see a different world. They just see the opportunity in the world. It's kind of like comedians don't see a different world, but they see the humor in the world. So um, can they find that insight and then my final word I would say is resourceful. And resourceful is a funny word because it's what you are when you don't have resources. And like, can you figure stuff out? Because even when founders are well-funded, 
you're never funded as big as an incumbent, right? And you never have enough time or resources. So you got to make choices to figure it out. Totally. A couple of things I like to think about are, I think the term social proof has gotten sort of, um, you know, people sort of use it to mean like who else is investing. Whereas (laughs) I I often don't find that to be a ton of signal unless what, what I really find to be signal is people who've known that person for a long time and have a lot of data on that on that team uh, being able to to give insight for when you're just just being an entrepreneur. So if someone some you know even a prestigious investor just comes in and meets that them for the for the first time or, or, or pretty recently, I don't think a, a ton about that. But if it's hey they've gotten backing from every CEO they've ever worked with, that's pretty meaningful to me. So I, I like to go, especially when you're meeting someone, you know, you're trying to get as much data as you can in a short period of time really referencing with people who've worked with them in the past, who've known them for, for a long time. And one sort of cheat code we like to use here is, is the OnDeck Founder Fellowship, which, which enables us to meet people you know, six months before they even start a company and start to build that relationship and track them you know, week after week. Sort of, uh, Anne talks about like the savers do ratio. You know, how much are they talking versus how much are they <laughs> executing or, or shipping or, or, or building? So that's, uh, that's definitely something I, I think about as well. Okay, so we talked about how, how to evaluate team. How, how, what other frameworks do we have for just evaluating investments more, more generally? Uh, Shil, let's, let's start with you. Yeah, so I have a, a T framework that I, I like to use. I, don't, I didn't invent it. It's just something I heard somewhere. So it starts with team. Team is number one, the most important thing, at seed in particular. Number two, TAM, total addressable market. Like, is there a market opportunity here? Is it big enough? Are there market shifts and opportunities that make it like make it now the time or, you know, TAM slash trends. Traction. Traction, by the way, does not have to mean revenue. A lot of people think that that's what it means. But actually, especially where I invest in fintech, oftentimes there's no revenue. It's really like, have you sorted through certain things? Do I think you'll be able to sort through many more things? Have you done some customer validation and all that sort of stuff? Technology. Is there something new and compelling about what you're doing? And do you have a technology team that that I think will be able to execute on it? Terms, like, is this a reasonable deal? Like, do I think that you're in the realm of reasonable? And for me, and actually we we should, quick side note on that, sort of like where we think deals are reasonable. So from my standpoint, there's now bifurcated seed into pre-seed and seed. And I would say, seed rounds that we've invested at or pre-seed rounds that we've invested at are like between a four and eight million dollar valuation, maybe, maybe up to 10. And then seed rounds in the 10 to 15 range now. And this these are for like Bay Area rounds, different elsewhere in the world. So again, the T's team, TAM, tech, traction terms. And then there's the sixth T, which is totally random. And those are like, that's the like, do I really like this person? Especially now as a lead investor, I'm going to be in business with this person for five to 10 years. Do I want to be stuck with this person? Is it great to be stuck with this person? So, you know, there's a random questions that I ask there. One thing I've noticed also transitioning from an angel investor to a fund manager, you just, you were talking about terms is as, as an angel, you know, managing, you know, uh, or a scout managing a million dollars or $2 million, you could invest at you know, 30 million posts, or you, you could invest at higher valuations and, and still get an outcome that could return the whole fund. Obviously, it's $1 million, $2 million. Uh, or yeah. and you could also write smaller checks 
and just squeeze in. So you could be sort of last investor in. So I sort of found that I was like chasing hotness in a way that when you become a fund manager and you start managing a lot of money, you yeah. you can't invest on, on those terms because you know the outcome has to be so big, or it, 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 you know, such that it could return the fund. And then also you have to deploy much more capital. So you can't be last check in. You have to be first check in. And so just that changes the whole dynamic of, of how you think about investing. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of angels, like as an angel, you're a price taker. You're, you're not setting the price. So I think a lot of angels are pretty agnostic to price. And, and that, that's a totally fine way to be depending on what your rationale for becoming an angel investor are, like we talked about. Yeah. Like some people just want to be in the hot deals. And that, that's also fine. Yeah. Going back to the, where we're talking about the long feedback loops, you know, if you found LeBron James at, at 20 years old, you could get a sense that he is amazing at 20 years old and that he will be amazing, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now. But it doesn't like the venture investor at, you know, you, someone can be well networked or even smart, but you can't really know if they're any good in terms of the, will the returns uh, be good. And, and you also don't know if people get better over time. It's kind of hard to, hard to assess. How do you guys think about your own practice? Are you getting better? How, how do you have a sense about it? Um, and how do you think about your, your own growth in that way? I mean, I might have a totally different angle. I'm, I'm pretty new at angel investing, and I think that I hope to someday value, <laughs> measure my success by the amount of return. But uh, the reality is, I'm, I'm presently measuring my my value by the number of underrepresented uh, founders I can find mm-hmm. and and fund. Like that's the meaning I'm getting out of this at my stage. And um, you know, I, I want to see those folks uh, be successful, and that's the high order mission. And uh, hopefully, that'll return some money as well. But like, I really want to see more underrepresented startup execs out there in the world. And then hopefully they'll uh, turn around and do the same uh, when they can. Awesome. It's interesting because I think that it's how do you develop a scorecard for yourself around either the values that you have, like Nick was talking about, or the process? Like I want to be supporting certain founders or have a high level of standard such that the founders are referring me to other people. And I think every day, if you run a good process, good habits, hopefully that's rewarded, right? Because there is, I think there is a lot of serendipity in what we do, but hopefully consistency is better than intensity in terms of delivering outcomes over, over the long term. There's so much luck involved. <laughs> so much, so much luck involved. <laughs> And that's why VCs are bullshitters. Uh, <laughs> well, I, okay. So, you know, my favorite story about luck is that there's a guy, um, a researcher, and he ran an experiment with college students where he said, hey, I need you to come in and read this newspaper. And if you count all the pictures that are in the newspaper and you bring it up here to the head of the class, I will pay you $100. And uh, so he hands out the newspapers to all the students. And um, in about two or three minutes, a few of the students are going right up to the desk and handing in the newspaper with their little scorecard. And um, the rest are, you know, diligently counting. And the result of the study afterwards, the professor had put on page two of the newspaper in huge type, you don't need to count the pictures, just walk up and say the number 39 to me. But it was in text. And the very diligent people who were counting pictures all missed it. But people who, and this is interesting, people who considered themselves lucky were more opportunistic, more likely to read the text. So maybe there's something too. <laughs> more than that. Yeah. 
to perceiving your own luck or, or, or creating your own luck. It, it, yeah, it's super interesting. I mean, we think a lot about how to, how to pick angel investors. And so, you know, we always, we often use Chris Saka as, a, as an example. It, you know, some of his first investments were Uber and Twitter at, you know, let's say at, at age 30. At 40, was, is he better than he was at 30? So how do you catch people who are sort of on the up and up, uh, but aren't so, you know, you know, public, yeah, advanced that they're like now raising their own, you know, $300 million funds. And so it's just, it's just very interesting sort of philosophical, philosophical yeah. of how to, how to assess good angel investment and, and what's the right timing. I don't know. I've, my take as an early person in this is that the success kind of breeds itself. I've had, I've had a couple uh, that, that have gone well and they immediately resulted, you know, cause your name's on the, on the cap table and getting better opportunities. So I, I, I think you get a couple winners and then you kind of uh, are, uh, you're, you're in the know somewhat artificially, I think. The, the other thing on that note that I feel like no one ever talks about, but it's clearly true is people only remember your winners. So if you're in every deal, you're only talking about the ones that you won. It doesn't matter that you did a hundred investments that year. There were three that were great. Like that's what your reputation <laughs> somehow has become. So it, like, so a lot of people, they're just in every deal and you know, that actually works depending on what your goals are. That actually works. Like you were in the hot deals. You were in the good, like, and, and that can work out financially too, but you know, that's how some people play it. Totally. Yeah. What you was saying is invest in all your friends and the ones that don't work out, just never talk about them. Never talk to them. <laughs> just, just ignore them. But the ones who really made it talk about how you were there from day one. Yeah. <laughs> you were a founding investor. <laughs> I, I think this is a perfect place to, to wrap. Shield Nick, uh, for, for people who want to, uh, to reach out to you and potentially, uh, potentially pitch you, what, what might you say about things that you're looking for or, or best ways to potentially get in touch with, uh, with you or, or, or your fund in the case of you, Shield? Shield, why don't you start off? Yeah, actually, like I've recently gotten a bunch of pitches on Twitter and happy to take those. Uh, easy to find. And so because this, this episode is geared towards angel investors, I'd also say like, look, if you're getting started and, and especially if you're interested in fintech, hit me up. I'm happy to happy to share stuff. There are oftentimes we're leading rounds and, and have opportunities for other people to get involved. And if you let me know what you're interested in, uh, hopefully we'll work together someday. Uh, Nick, uh, Nick, how about you? Yeah, likewise, I highly recommend connecting with me on Twitter at Nick Cult. Uh, also, have, <laughs> also have a website where you can kind of see my investment thesis. Just go to nickcaldwell.com. And, you know, I'm primarily, um, you know, looking at uh, data and data-related startups. I also think that uh, hyper-collaboration, the idea that, that all uh, productivity tools are going to be built with teams in mind is something that uh, excites me. Um, so, you know, if you're interested in any of that, you know, don't be shy. Just hit me up on my website or on Twitter. Awesome. Ann and I are, are excited to take any uh, sort of pitches as it relates to being a, a network leader at, at Village Global uh, and, uh, and or joining the, uh, the Ondek Angel Fellowship in partnership, in partnership with Village. And we're excited to have Sheil and Nick both as network leaders and in the fellowship, uh, respectively. Uh, and Nick, Sheil, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been a great episode. Thanks. Thanks, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.